today on Ag News Daily. Cattle producers, uh, they don't need to apply. Uh, they don't need to take additional steps. This is it's essentially uh, providing additional resources to what we anticipate would be about 410,000 producers, about $1.1 billion of additional support and help. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Happy Hump Day. Coming to you from Ag News Daily, Delaney Hall here, joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, this week is hurting my brain. I cannot, I honestly like can't remember what day today is, what way is up, what way is down. It's been hectic and I don't even know why. I can't put my finger on it. I know it's been that way for me as well. Lots going on personally, lots going on in school, at work. It's just been kind of a hot mess, to be honest. And I feel super weird because really the past three days, the only time you and I have really talked to each other is on the podcast. And typically I feel like we're texting each other from before, you know, eight o'clock in the morning till after 5 p.m. in the afternoon. So I I just feel like I haven't even been in touch with you. So we've both been all over the place. Yeah, for somebody I've never met, I talk to you a heck of a lot more than I talk to most people, Ashton. I know. I think that you're the person that I talk to the most out of literally everyone in my contacts. <laughs> I apologize. I sh- am hogging all your time away from all your friends and family. Oh my gosh, no. I feel like it's me. I'm like always the one texting you about something, always emailing you about something. I just, I can never learn how to just send multiple points in one text message. I feel like I always send them like seven text messages in a row. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, me too. It's fine. Well, Delaney, one thing that hasn't been really going as fast as you and I both have this week is the news. What have you got for us today? Yeah, I tell you what, it is slow today, Ash, and I am struggling to find a whole lot of news going on. And to be honest, I really, I mean, I there's a lot of days I don't, that I don't struggle to find news, and today is one of them. But um, I know you have been sitting in on some of the sessions with AgriPulse, and a lot of the discussion has been around carbon and carbon credits. Is that right, Ashton? Am I correct in assuming that? Yes. Okay, great. So that'll lead me in nicely to this little piece of news. And maybe you've already heard this. So this might be old news for you. But uh, during the the session today, USDA's top climate advisor, Robert Bonney, says that agriculture and forestry are going to figure into many climate change commitments that the U.S. is going to make to cut greenhouse gas emissions. He even went on to say that the administration is pushing really hard and is going to pledge to slash U.S. emissions by half by 2050. So that's a pretty aggressive goal, Ashton, from what I can tell. And I am not an expert in this division. Uh, We've got a lot of good conversations coming up with experts on the podcast here over the next week, week and a half or so. So I'm going to let them handle the bulk of it. But I thought that was a really aggressive target. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Ashton. Yeah, I think that a lot of the environmentalists, the scientists, um, you know, industry professionals that have been involved in these sessions, they seem pretty optimistic. And, you know, I'm really glad and happy that they're optimistic, but I'm kind of a realist, maybe even have a a touch of a pessimist in me at times. Um, But I just, I don't know, you know, that that will actually happen. I mean, we're seeing a lot of Fortune 500 companies and, you know, other small businesses, Um, you know, kind of commit to being 
um, carbon net zero or, you know, reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, whatever you, you want to call it, they're making those efforts to be more environmentally sustainable. And, you know, all of that is well and grand, but, you know, at what point can we start seeing results as, you know, kind of right. that, that comes to my mind. And there was one session that I sat in on today and um, it was a, a, a round table of four professionals. Um, I can't remember who all was in there right now, but I, I do remember that we've had two of those individuals on the podcast. And, you know, that's going to be a session that we do feature at some point down the road, but they were talking about how um, we can, as, as a country, be carbon net zero. And I can't exactly remember the, the timeline. I've been a part of so many different talks and sessions um, over the past three days. So you'll have to excuse me on that. But you know, they, they are being optimistic. I wasn't a part of that one that you're talking about with Robert Bonnie, but you know, that optimism is shared, you know, throughout the industry, it sounds like. Yes, it certainly does, Ashton. And you're right. We're going to have a lot of conversations about that. It's not a subject I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon, especially with the Biden administration's focus on climate change renewable energies, renewable fuels, etc. Uh, this discussion is going to be one that agriculture is going to be a large part of, I think. And part of that is due to the fact that agriculture theoretically has a big role to play in all of this. So I think there's been a lot, a lot of negative connotation about this administration focusing on climate change and environmental practices, etc. But I think that agriculture has the ability here to do some really great things if we work together on it. That's my take, at least. I would have to agree with you there, Delaney. But another session that I was a part of today, actually, that we are going to be featuring later on in the podcast was talking to USDA Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. And in this discussion, it was it was a part of a, a conference call with NAFB. Vilsack kind of gave us some answers on to what the USDA is kind of doing in terms of COVID relief. And I will, of course, let him detail that later. But just to give you guys a little bit of a taste, the USDA said that it will dedicate at least $6 billion to expand financial assistance for farmers hurt by the pandemic, including small and socially disadvantaged producers. And um, just to give you a, a number, I... You know, I don't know if I want to share this information or not because Vilsack, you know, says it and it's going to have to be a two part, um, not two part interview, but a two part um, episode. So you won't hear this folks until tomorrow. But he says that 99% of COVID relief was given to white farmers. And so that socially disadvantaged producer segment of that piece of news um, is it's pretty, pretty big, I would say, you know, he talks about um, the diversity in agriculture that we've been discussing, we get some answers on on that kind of stuff. So this next bit of relief, it, I mean, they put it on pause, you know, for a reason. And I know that farmers have been frustrated with this, but it sounds like they are really trying to be all encompassing because the previous relief packages kind of fell short. And so we're getting a couple of our questions answered, getting a lot more inclusion, it sounds like, but folks, you're just going to have to keep tuning on in and get your questions answered yourself. Absolutely, Ashton, and that will be coming up here in just a little bit. But while we're on the topic of USDA, well, not necessarily USDA, but 
the government. A federal judge has given a preliminary approval to separate the agreements requiring broiler chicken processors to pay consumers $104 million to settle their price-fixing allegations. At $99 million, the largest payment will come from Tyson Foods, and the rest will be paid by Peco Foods, Fielddale Farms, and Georgia's Inc. So basically, this preliminary judge, or excuse me, the federal judge has preliminary granted the funds or the settlement offered, the settlement fee, I should say, to be divvied up more accurately by these four companies. Tyson obviously paying the largest chunk of that since. They have been involved in that pretty heavily, um, and they also, I think, have more, I don't know if plaintiffs is the correct word, but more folks uh, pointing the finger at Tyson. Maybe that's not the best way to explain that. That's not the most eloquent way to explain that, Ashton, but that's basically my understanding of it. Well, Delaney, I just have one more piece of news concerning the Biden administration, and it's talking about Biden's infrastructure plan because it's kind of coming under under attack or you know falling falling short of expectations while officials say the plan centers around roads bridges and other infrastructure projects since it is a infrastructure plan of course critics are saying that it's only a small piece of the potential proposal the proposal is part of biden's build back better plan which is this article is this is the first I'm hearing of this plan. So I don't know if I really should be reporting on news if I'm not staying up to date. But more more than infrastructure, it could also include climate change initiatives. And the massive bill is drawing criticism from those who say infrastructure should stay the focus. Highlights of the potential plan include $1 trillion for repairing the nation's roads, bridges, waterways, waterways, rail, electric vehicles, etc. money for policies like free community college, pre-K education, and paid family leave, funds for universal broadband internet access, money for technology support to support 5G and a green electric grid, and a portion of the bill focuses on carbon-free transportation. While reports show the spending would be partially offset by increasing taxes on companies and top earners, Mike Stoneheck, who's the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, says that he's concerned about how much of the bill is not focused on infrastructure. So while this plan is not written in stone or anything, it sounds like the Biden administration might be going back to the drawing board because although this is an infrastructure plan, not everything is super, you know, um, I guess, um, sorry, it's taking me a second to... um, to find my words here, but not everything falls under that infrastructure umbrella, it sounds like. All right. Sounds good, Ashley. I'm glad you're keeping an eye on that because I did not even know that that was going on right now. I'm not going to lie to you. To be honest, Ashton, I spend, I would say, 90% of my days focusing on commodity markets, which since we're talking about, I would like to talk about today. But we saw soybeans push for the fourth consecutive day here and have almost put in some, not, I wanna, don't, don't want to say fresh highs, but we've almost put in some uh, recent highs. How about that? But uh, we're chopping right along here. Corn and soybeans were both higher today. And that's a little bit not shocking, but uh, maybe shocking is the correct word. But, you know, we've got this big report coming out next week. Is it going to be a market mover? We've got mixed reviews on that. So we'll talk a little bit more about that on Monday. But Ashton, if I may, kick it off here with the market. 
take it away, Delaney. Well, let's start here in the May corn contract up two cents today to close at 5.53 and a quarter. The D's down three quarters of a cent to close at 4.69. In the soybean pits, the May contract up nine and a half cents today to close at 14.32 and three quarters. The November down four, excuse me, up four and three quarters cents to close at 12.28 and a quarter. Chicago wheat lower today as the May contract shed 10 cents to close at 6.24 and three quarters. The July down seven and a half to close at 6.18 and three quarters. And a look at the livestock market today. There was green across the screen as the April live cattle contract unchanged on the day to close at 119.12.5. The June up 25 cents to close at 120.30. Feeder cattle also higher today as the April contract added 270 to close at 142.45. The May up $1.85 to close at 147.32 and a half. And in lean hogs, the April lean hog contract up $1.30 today to close at 97.77 and a half. The May up $1.05 to close at 96.80. And topping over to take a look at the class three dairy milk futures. The April contract down nine cents today to close at 1662. The May down 28 cents to close at 1720. Now, Ashton, I'm very glad we kept news short because I'm excited to hear what USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack had to say today to NAFB members. I'm going to uh, make myself scarce here and uh, turn things over to uh, Mr. Secretary for any opening remarks he might have. Spencer, thanks very much. And it's uh, great to be back with uh, the National uh, Farm Broadcasters uh, Group. I uh, certainly extend my uh, condolences and sympathies to uh, Gail and his family for the loss that they've suffered. Uh, never, never an easy time. So our heart goes out to them. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. I'm going to take just a few minutes to sort of outline the announcement we made today on the pandemic assistance at USDA for farmers and producers. Uh, I think it's important for us to sort of set the stage for why we did what we've done and what we announced uh, today. Uh, this really is designed to, to uh, encapsulate uh, a, a set of decisions made by USDA uh, that will is designed first and foremost to help those uh, a bit more than who have already been helped under the previous COVID uh, relief packages, uh, perhaps provide greater outreach to those who might have been qualified for participation in programs but didn't know about them or didn't fully uh, participate because they didn't know how to. Uh, and also to extend help uh, to many uh, in agriculture and in the supply chain who previous to this had not received uh, any help from COVID uh, relief packages or perhaps received very, very little. Uh, we've divided this thing in, into four basic steps or four parts. I'll, I'll briefly review all four and then uh, be happy to respond to questions you have on this or any other topic. The goal of us, uh, for us in this effort was to try to provide as much help as equitably as possible to as many producers as possible who have been hurt by COVID. Uh, and uh, given the d diversity of agriculture, the size of operations and methods of production, this was not an easy task. And it took us a, a bit of time uh, to sort of get our arms around what the need was, how much resource was available, both through COVID packages and through normal USDA packages, and then try to put together a comprehensive plan. Uh, we are using resources from COVID. Uh, we are using resources uh, from previous COVID packages. We're also using resources from some of our more traditional USDA programs. So four parts. First part, uh, we're obviously focused on making sure that we're carrying out the formula payments under CFAP 1, 2, and uh, AA, uh, rolling those into this more comprehensive effort 
this is going to allow us to make payments uh, to farmers uh, who have already received the benefits of these programs. Rules have already been written, uh, not much uh, administrative work to be done here. Uh, so we're in a position to make payments and, and to begin making those payments very, very soon uh, in the month of April. Uh, payments will involve under CFAP 1, uh, payments to cattle producers. Uh, they don't need to apply. Uh, they don't need to take additional steps. This is essentially uh, providing additional resources to what we anticipate would be about 410,000 producers, about $1.1 billion of additional support and help. Uh, rates for these producers will be published uh, on a website at farmers.gov slash CFAP. I would encourage cattle producers to take a look at that to determine how much they might be entitled to in, a, in addition to and above what they've already received. Uh, in addition, uh, we will also uh, uh, this April begin the process of paying out the $20 per acre to eligible crops identified under CFAP2, uh, crops that are identified as either flat rate or price triggered crops. Now this includes a wide array of crops, alfalfa, corn, cotton, hemp, peanuts, rice, sorghum, soybeans, uh, sugar beets, wheat, many other products. No need for new applications based on the CFAP2 uh, eligible acres anticipate 560,000 producers receiving about $4.5 billion of additional assistance and help. Uh, we also recognized uh, that there were some folks who uh, perhaps were involved in, in prior uh, COVID packages where the formulation, the calculation may have potentially created a situation where some people wouldn't get the kind of help uh, and assistance that they needed. And for that reason, uh, we're going to basically make some adjustments. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, there was a, a, a an opportunity for swine producers and contract growers, poultry, to receive payments, uh, additional payments. The problem was the formula that was used in uh, in initial uh, efforts really created a circumstance of inequity between the size of, of operations. And so we're going to try to smooth that out a little bit and try to make sure that uh, we set up a formula that will allow for adequate resources and help to swine and contract growers. On sales commodities, which are a wide range of, of, of products, um, when we calculated the base upon which your payment would be made, uh, we didn't allow them to take into consideration uh, insurance that they may have received, indemnity payments, and NAP payments, or WIP plus payments that they may have received. We, we think that we should allow them to recalculate, if you will, uh, and we're viewing this process and allowing them to essentially go uh, back in time to basically shore up uh, uh, the the amount of loss that they had in fact to sustain so that they get a payment uh, that makes sense. Now, there are other uh, adjustments like this that are in uh, sort of the first uh, bucket, if you will, of this four-part effort to try to provide pandemic assistance to producers. Um, the second bucket, uh, we're taking resources that would uh, that come from traditional uh, uh, USDA programs that are specifically designed for local and regional food systems and basically getting them out the door in an expedited way. Uh, there's 100, uh, roughly $500 million that we've identified of new funding from these programs that we're going to try to expedite getting out the door quickly, which should provide help and assistance uh, to, uh, to uh, small, uh, mid-sized producers, specialty crop producers, and others. It's uh, a five, uh, $75 million for farmers, uh, for training and outreach that's designed primarily for socially disadvantaged farmers to give them uh, some additional information and, and training. Uh, that money is going to be provided $100 million under our local ag marketing program 
This is uh, designed to provide assistance for direct uh, to consumer marketing, uh, benefiting local and regional food markets. Uh, $75 million in the Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentive Program, which is designed to encourage uh, more consumption and more purchasing of, of fruits and vegetables. Uh, an opportunity uh, as well for a specialty crop, uh, specialty crop, crop block grant, $100 million uh, to go out to state uh, commissioners, uh, secretaries and directors of agriculture for additional assistance and help. So that's the second bucket, $500 million to try to encourage more marketing and more opportunities. The third bucket, um, and, and within that $500 million, there's a series of other, other steps. So we're money for APHIS uh, to, uh, to uh, assist in disease, animal prevention, additional resources for ARS and to partner with the Texas A&M on a One Health Initiative, uh, and $80 million to provide some assistance in the cotton industry as well. Uh, under uh, a program that was established under the Economic Adjustment Assistance for uh, Textile Mills uh, Program. So uh, a lot of different unique opportunities here to provide help and assistance to get folks who are in the supply chain or are critically important to agriculture generally in the, in the country, getting them assistance and help. The, the third bucket is a $6 billion bucket where we don't have the rules necessarily written because these are people and groups and entities that have not yet received money or haven't received sufficient resources from USDA. So we wanna give them an opportunity to participate because they too have been impacted and affected by COVID. Uh, I'll give you an example, a dairy donation program. We recognized during the course of COVID uh, how difficult it was for certain uh, commodities to donate uh, to uh, food assistance. The transition from food service to food assistance was difficult. Um, we're creating resources under a dairy donation program uh, to make it a little bit easier to remove that disincentive for donation in the event we have, uh, you know, future problems uh, and we learn from this experience uh, so that we're ready, better prepared uh, in the future. There is an opportunity to reimburse folks who had to euthanize livestock uh, and poultry uh, during this very tragic circumstance. Uh, uh, an opportunity to, to assist timber harvesters uh, and, and, and haulers who uh, clearly were hurt and impacted by the COVID. The biofuel industry that uh, obviously didn't receive any help in the previous uh, COVID packages, but yet uh, experienced significant difficulties because of COVID, because of trade, a variety of other issues. Uh, also opportunity for additional resources to help especially crop producers, beginning farmers, additional resources for uh, organic and urban agriculture as well. Uh, opportunities for us to, in essence, take $6 billion uh, divided uh, appropriately and equitably in a way that provides help and assistance to, at all levels, if you will, uh, of agriculture. There'll be additional resources for uh, protective equipment for farm workers and, and processors and who work in processing facilities. Uh, there's an opportunity for uh, even seafood processors to be engaged and involved in this. So it's very uh, comprehensive. Uh, we're going to take a look at our the resiliency of our food supply system, figure out ways in which we might be able to provide greater resilience. Um, that might be helping uh, processing facilities. It might be looking at ways in which we can expand processing capacity. Um, the opportunity as well for us to help food banks uh, and other users of, of perishable items in particular, other uh, uh, opportunities for farm to school, uh, restaurants, food banks, a, a wide variety of folks in the supply chain that are gonna be helped and assisted with this effort. And all of this is designed to provide as comprehensive uh, an opportunity as possible. And then the final bucket is essentially recognizing that under CFAP2, um, our outreach probably needs to be improved, particularly to socially disadvantaged producers. And so there'll be an opportunity to reopen CFAP2, if you will, a new 60-day uh, application uh, period uh, that gives those folks who may have been left out uh, and left behind an opportunity to uh, participate in the program. 
So uh, that's a lot of information, uh, but the, the whole goal here is to make sure that when we're providing COVID relief, we recognize that COVID has impacted and affected virtually every aspect of agriculture uh, and the supply chain. And we're trying to do our best, along with the American Rescue Plan, uh, to do what we can uh, to bolster that supply chain, to provide the help and assistance to keep people on the farm uh, and to make sure it's equitably uh, administered. So with that, let me stop and uh, happy to respond to questions if there are any. There are several, Mr. Secretary, and the first question, as a reminder to our uh, NAFB membership, uh, raise your hand if you'd like to get yourself in the question queue. Uh, if you are uh, unable to voice your own question, uh, by all means, feel free to chat it my way, and I I'd be happy to uh, ask it on your behalf. First question comes from Todd Gleason. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, we appreciate you spending your time with us today. You mentioned this week uh, the CCC might be used to stimulate some form of carbon sequestration. Is this one of the options you plan to present to the president as it pertains to the tackling the climate crisis executive order? And do you have ideas on how that might work? Well, first and foremost, uh, we're going to make sure that before we formulate any plans, uh, we're going to do what we what the president has directed us to do in the uh, in the executive order and what we would normally do even without the executive order, which is ask for input. Uh, so we put out in the federal registry a series of questions that we want uh, those in the farming community, those in the forest community to respond to in terms of how we best can help and assist in creating uh, support for climate smart agriculture. The president has set forth a fairly uh, aggressive uh, vision of a net zero emission agriculture by the year 2050. This is incredibly important, I think, for the long-term viability of markets for us, both internationally and domestically. More consumers around the world are demanding uh, proof, if you will, of sustainability. And if America can get to a point where we are operating a net zero emission, uh, we would not only help uh, our climate effort, but I think we will also make our products more, uh, more marketable uh, in both the domestic and, and foreign markets. Um, Carbon bank is certainly one of those options, uh, but I would say that uh, any effort in terms of the carbon uh, sequestration or carbon bank has to be designed specifically for farmers. Um, this is not a situation where the existing carbon market system would, would be particularly helpful. Um, it's uh, very cumbersome. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork. It's really not designed for farmers. The, the credit value is not high enough to justify farmers taking the financial cost that might be incurred in embracing some technologies or some practices. So what we need to do is figure out how we can structure uh, an effort that speaks directly to farmers based on the input that they're going to give to us, and then basically creates the kind of incentive that's of interest to farmers, whether it's uh, basically the ability to have credits sold through a reverse auction process, or whether we have a guaranteed price for credits that, that provides the incentive for those interested in purchasing the credits, or we have a circumstance where we're essentially funding and financing the improvements on the farm so the farmer is not in a position to have to incur additional expense, or a combination of those factors or some other factor that might make uh, this market appealing. Then making sure that we walk before we run. Uh, we're not going to do this in a big, bold, huge way until we know how it might work. So if we do it, when we do it, uh, we'll start uh, relatively small uh, so that we can learn from that experience and build on it so that we have a viable and trusted opportunity uh, if that's what we decide, decide to do. Uh, sequestration is incredibly important. Uh, we're not going to get, uh, I don't think, uh, to our national goals without incorporating in some way, shape, or form carbon sequestration in the rural lands 
uh, that represent roughly three quarters of the land mass of the United States. Tremendous opportunity for us to increase farm income, create new job opportunities, not just the only way of doing this. I think there's a lot of uh, opportunities to uh, reuse and reclaim uh, methane. I think there's opportunities for us to turn agricultural waste into a variety of different products that creates new revenue streams and lowers the greenhouse gas uh, footprint of farms. Um, I'm excited about this future. I think it's doable. And I think, frankly, the farm community is ready for this if it's structured right and if they're if they feel like they're part of it. Uh, and that's what we're, uh, we're, we're focused on doing. I was lucky enough to be a part of this conversation earlier today, and I hope that folks at home also enjoyed hearing those words from Secretary Vilsack. My mind has just been kind of boggled this week with all the information that I have been digesting with all of these sessions, but we're going to continue to cover those sessions. Actually, I say that today was the last day of sessions this week. Thank goodness, because I was getting a little bit overwhelmed there, Delaney. But uh, that happens, <laughs> that happens in the world of agriculture. There's always stuff going on, which we love to stay up to date on on the Ag News Daily podcast. You can stay up to date too at agnewsdaily.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.